This is episode two of Ruminate, a podcast about the opportunities and challenges that technology prep presents us with every day. I'm John Voorhees, your host, and along with me today is my co-host, Rob Lewis. Hi, Rob. Hi, John. How are you? Very good. How are you doing today? I'm very well indeed. Um, got a couple of little uh, little bits about feedback that we should jump into first. Sure, uh, let's do that. Carry on. Uh, so we've now got an email. If you've got any, if anyone anyone's uh, got any feedback for us, uh, that email is contact at ruminatepodcast com. And if you're more into the hashtags on Twitter, um, you can use hashtag AskRuminate, and uh, that'll be going into a spreadsheet for us to take a look at and answer any questions. Yeah, we thank Jason Snell for that idea. I think he's the first one who originated that with um, Upgrade, don't you? Isn't that right? Uh, yeah, I pretty much think so, and it uh, seems like everyone's using it now, so we should probably jump on it as well. Yeah, it seems like a good idea to me. Um, so we have some follow-up from our last episode, and the first thing I wanted to talk about is, of course, the, the Pizza Hut cheeseburger pizza that Rob ate. Um, I did a little more further investigation and found that this actually originated in the Middle East, and from the Middle East it made its way to the UK, and then the UK dumped it on America. Um, we'll put some links in the in the show notes, but uh, there's a good article on consumerists that describe the pizza as a grease-filled sunflower, which that's really probably the best description I could give it. Uh, taking a look at the picture, it's just a horrifying mess of as, and then another article that I read uh, described it as extraordinary and repulsive. Um, sorry, Rob, but <laughs> that's what the internet thinks of your pizza. <laughs> that pretty much reflects what I thought of it as well, to be fair. Um, I still ate it, but I think I would agree with most of that. Yeah, they did their best in photographing it. I mean, it, it, it but it was, it, it's just, it's not, it's not round like a pizza. So I don't know if you could really call it a pizza, but it's shaped kind of like, it's, uh, it's as if you took a pizza and grafted on a bunch of little mini cheeseburgers around the edge, little, little satellites to the main pizza so that it looks like, um, like the, the cheeseburgers are orbiting the, the pizza sun in the center, something along those lines. <laughs> we'll um we'll put those links in the show notes so uh, everyone else can be as disgusted as i am with myself <laughs> yeah exactly um i also had a few links about ad blockers that i just wanted to pass along some interesting things that i saw during the week the last couple of weeks um, that i thought people might want to check out at some point and one is i mean we raised briefly on the last episode how how relatively easy it is to do your own create your own ad blocker if you've got any development experience and there's a nice project on github called block party which is a simple ios 9 and um and os 10 uh ad blocker that you can if you know your way around X, know your way around xcode you can um you know, download the project, compile it, and put it on your phone or, or on your Mac. Um, and, you know, the hard part here, I think, is not so much <clears throat> creating the creating the uh, the ad blocker itself, but it's making sure you have all the list of of sites and and trackers and things that you want to block as part of the ad blocker. And uh, if you look at this this project, there's a list of about I think about sixteen hundred things that it that it blocks, which is a pretty pretty extensive list uh, have you taken a look at that one Ram? uh yeah it's quite interesting to see kind of the huge amount of uh of different sites that you need to block and i wonder if i mean you look at something like this this block party project i wonder how uh you know different content blockers are gonna um differentiate themselves i mean uh crystal app which was the one we spoke about last week presumably will be available on launch um if all goes to plan right 
I mean, I'm not sure where the where the differentiation is going to be between these different um, ad blockers. I mean, I guess you might only want to block pop-ups or maybe only ad tracking. But for the most part, I mean, if somebody installs one of these um, with all this huge listing, I, I can't see any reason you'd ever want to switch. Yeah, I, I think the, the, dis, the differentiation is going to come from things like um, the granularity of the settings. Do you want to just block ads? Do you want to block um, trackers? Do you want to block... Yeah, I don't know, pop up videos, that sort of thing. I think that's, you know, I, I mean, I'd like to have that kind of control over any ad blocker that I'm running. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm hoping, I'm not sure exactly how these work on iOS, but I'm hoping that I'll be able to kind of turn them off on a, a per site basis as well, kind of like, you know, the way the, the Chrome ones work now, because uh, I certainly wouldn't want to be blocking, you know, uh, writers that I read all the time, like Marco Armen and, you know, Jason Snell, people like that. I wouldn't want to be blocking their ads, which just aren't intrusive at all, really. Right, right. Now, also, when you mentioned um, you mentioned the Crystal app, that I think is made by a guy in the UK, and I just saw this morning that he's got some uh, facts up on on the Murphy Apps website. So we'll put that in the show notes. It kind of, there was, a, I guess, he was getting a lot of questions over the last um, over the last week about his um, ad blocker Crystal, and uh, he's got some answers here. It does look like it's going to be universal. It's going to have an OS ten version. Um, multiple languages are supported, um, and that it's going to be, as he puts it, a premium app, whatever that means. So it's going to, they're going to charge something for it. And I, yeah, and I, th- I think that's good, though, because, you know, if we're all paying for it, you know, maybe whatever it is, $2, $3, whatever, um, at least we know that um, it's, uh, you know, it, it will be sustainable and we'll get updates and things like that in the future. Yeah, you don't have to convince me that paying for apps is a good thing. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I have no problem with it whatsoever. So, um, so that was that's that project. Um, a couple other things I saw. One was in the Next Web. There was an article by Owen Williams that uh, covers a lot of the the stats that we talked about um, from the Crystal app. Uh, what was kind of interesting about his article was particularly there were some gifts just showing side by side. Uh, the loading of a page, a large page with um, with crystal turned on and with it turned off. Uh, it's obviously not very scientific, but kind of an interesting way to approach it and look at, you know, really demonstrate the differences. Yeah, and definitely. I mean, if you're interested, it's, it's well worth taking a look at that link. And it, as you say, the GIFs on their own kind of explain what these content blockers are going to do for, for the mobile web and, and you know, browsing on iOS. Um, but again, that that'll be in the show notes. Um, our show notes are at roommatepodcast.com slash two. Ah, very good. Uh, and we have actually two more links on ad blockers. I mean, this, this is a topic that just doesn't seem to die at all. Um, there was a good episode of Vector um, where Renee Ritchie interviewed James Thompson, who's the um, developer of PCalc, uh, which is a great Mac and iOS calculator app that everybody should have if they don't already. Um, but James talked a lot about about ad blockers and what that meant from a development perspective as well as um, a user's perspective. Um, so check that check out that podcast if you're interested in hearing his perspective on it. Um, and the final thing that I wanted to mention was some, I guess they're infographics really that that visualize the number of links and things that that uh, exist on some of these large websites for advertising and blockers and whatnot. This is um, from Adam 
Adam Bintz, I think. Um, Crafty Dino on Twitter. And if you take a it's it's uh, a little hard to describe, but it's a just a huge web of sites that connect back to. In this example, that I that was the most egregious um, that he found, I think, was the TMZ website, TMZ.com. Did you see this, Rob? Uh, yeah, I did. It's yeah, I think I guess you've described it the the best. So it's kind of a a web or, or kind of linking all these uh, tracking uh, scripts together, and there's just it's a complete mess. Um, I mean, this is just one website and they've got this huge amount of trackers and things like that. So, um, again, we'll put, pop that in the show notes um, and right. take a look. Right. It's kind of color coded by publisher and ad and privacy and, and different types of things that all originate from TMZ and it fans out from TMZ in this incredibly large web of dots. Um, and and the endpoints are basically the uh, the media companies where the um, the code originates from. So it's uh, it's interesting to see. It's really kind of amazing uh, how much it, it shows you exactly why some of these sites are so incredibly slow on mobile. Is that they're they're you know phoning back to each one of these sites individually and and downloading some some data uh, associated with it. So, and I th I think that's it for um, for follow up for today. I mean, today we wanted to talk about. A couple of things, but primarily, you know, we've got a an iOS launch coming up next week. So um, we thought we'd talk a little bit about some of the things surrounding that. And, and um, you know, maybe, Rob, you could start. I thought, you know, why don't we talk primarily, first and foremost, about how we watch the, the live stream. I mean, I think it's, to me, it's kind of interesting how people do this. And I, I mean, I've got my particular setup, and I know you do as well. Um, what do you like to do on a, on a launch day? Uh, yeah, so for me, um, I mean, I'll watch it. If they're live streaming it, I will make sure I watch it, assuming that I've got the time. Um, I, it's not so much to see kind of the, the the facts of it. Like, I I think we can all kind of guess and we kind of know at this point um, what's going to get released. But I, just, I find them quite interesting and entertaining. Um, a lot of the time, a friend of mine will come around and he'll watch it with us. And, you know, my girlfriend will sit there and watch the bit she's interested in and ignore the rest of it. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll have, have Twitter open sometimes so I can, you know, tweet snarky things and which, you know, I think is what a lot of us are doing. Um, how about you, John? Do you, you watch it with anyone or, or just yourself or? Well, unlike you, I mean, I'm at work when this happens. Uh, I guess it's usually about six o'clock your time, right? Uh, yeah, except on the, the weird times when the, the time zones are in, in weird places, but yeah, it's normally about six, six or seven. We get it. Right. For for me, it, it happens at noon, which is actually pretty nice, um, because what I do is I usually just set aside an hour and a half during lunch, grab something to eat, sit at my desk and watch the live stream at work. Um, and I'll typically have a, a text document open or take some notes. Um, my kids are, are very interested in what's going on, and I usually take some really high level notes and text that to them at the end of the at the end of the um event and then i'll do the same i'll keep uh twitter open and but usually that gets go that gets going so fast that i at, at some point just stop watching twitter and and uh just watch the live stream i i view it almost like it's like a holiday i mean i figure out eh, i'm not going to be super productive today i'm going to set aside a big block of time and kind of soak it in and it is for the most part a form of entertainment for me i mean i like you i mean I, we all read the websites and no matter how hard you try to avoid the spoilers um it's hard to to avoid mark german i mean you've got you've got articles out there that have detailed everything from 
you know, what the camera is going to be, um, what the Apple TV is going to have, what the remote's going to be, uh, what the iPad Pro is going to look like. All that stuff is out there. Um, but it's still fun to watch. I, I do miss a little bit, though, the, um, the the surprise of it all. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if looking at the list of uh, things that Mark Gurman has uh, kind of reported on that allegedly are going to be released, um, we've got the iPad Pro, which Mark Gurman is saying may or may not happen. Um, we've got an, a new iPad Mini, the new iPhones, Apple mm-hmm. TV, there's new watch bands, um, you know, and, and within each of those categories, you know, he's got really small details about every little thing that's going to happen. Um, and like you say, it's kind of hard to uh, avoid these rumors without just kind of just turning the internet off, um, especially with the, you know, the kind of people we follow, you know, tech bloggers and journalists, things like that. It's just impossible to to not know what's happening anymore. Yeah. What do you think about the watch? I mean, do you think it's just going to be bands or do you think they're going to do anything with the hardware? I don't, I can't see them um, doing a, an update to the actual hardware yet i mean it's only been you know a few months since most people got their hands on one um i think watch bands is a really good call um especially coming up to you know christmas and that time of year where people are just looking for gifts and things like that and i'd say especially with the sport bands um you're fairly limited if you want a sport band you've you've kind of got black and white or you've got these really bright colors i think they really could do with some more muted colors um, because a sport band is really comfortable. Uh, yeah, I love my I love my sport band, and it, I agree with you. I mean, it would be nice if they had a little more variety in the colors. Um, and I don't see hardware either on the on the um, on the watch at all. At least new hardware at this point. We've only had the thing for what four or five months as it is. Yeah, definitely. And I think on the the sport on the band um, conversation, like you know the the sport bands cost. I think they're forty pounds over here. I think they're like fifty dollars in the US. Right. But beyond that, if you want something different, I mean, that jumps up to $100, $150, right up to, you know, two, $300. So there's, there's not really anything in the middle for somebody who maybe wants something a little bit more understated and um, kind of muted on the colors. Right. It'd be interesting to see if they do more bands for like the um, the space gray aluminum model, because right now the only one you can get that actually matches the space gray case is the black watch band. They must have data on um you know the color preferences and iphones and, and the ipads as well in in those different colors so they must have known it would be fairly popular um although i guess in some way i mean i've got the i guess the ready pink uh sport band uh, uh-huh. which has obviously got the the aluminium uh little the clip on it um and it, you know it's not too much of a problem um on a match with my space gray one but as you say it would be nice to have some that do match as much as the black one matches Right, yeah, no, it doesn't really bother me either particularly, but I know people that does kind of drive people a little bit nuts when they see that the you know like the little the little bit that pop that that goes through the hole is is uh is is silver instead of black, but yeah, I don't think it's a bit particularly a big deal myself um you know going back to the iPad for a second, I am really skeptical about something launching this week on the iPad I mean I think it's gonna happen I just it seems like an awful lot for uh, one event to have new iPhones, an Apple TV, an iPad, and even maybe you know some what are I guess watch bands, which are accessories for the watches. It, it just seems like too much to me. And, and history is, at least in the past, the iPad has always come out. Well, I shouldn't say always because it did. The original one did come out in the spring, but lately it's been more of a separate event in October. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting to think. I mean, you know, we've had some significantly long events the last the last couple of years. Um, you know, even without this much stuff. Um, and if they if they really want to do justice to you know this and this new alleged Apple TV plus a new iPad in a new category, you know, this iPad Pro. I, I mean, we we could be looking at a two or three hour event if they were to to really do it properly and do, and do them justice on the these new new items right and i mean i guess there's a couple of things one is the the venue they're using this year is a lot larger than they've used in the past which i think is telling and i think it's telling from the standpoint of the apple tv though maybe from the standpoint of the ipad but i suspect that we're going to see people invited who have been invited to this event that are beyond the usual tech blogger tech news journalist um, group of people that you're going to see more media people, um, I guess, uh, Hollywood types. If, if there's something big coming, um, on an Apple TV that incorporates any kind of service. And I know that there's talk that the services aren't going to be ready, but, um, I could see that being one reason that perhaps the, the venue is as large as it is. The other potential one, I suppose, is the, 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 the iPad, but I'm not as convinced that that's the case. I mean, this, yeah, you know, this iPad I think is going to make a big difference um, in a way that hasn't been entirely anticipated. I mean, I think that there's some talk that there's a separate keyboard that's being developed by Apple, which I have kind of mixed feelings about. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, sometimes I feel as though if you're using, if you're one of those people who has a computer, uh, uh, has a keyboard case on your iPad, why don't you just have a laptop? Um, but if it's easily removable, then I think in a way. That answers the question, in that you've got the best of both both worlds. You have the ability to use it as as um, a tablet, a pure tablet, and you also have the ability to, to type on it. And I've been tempted to get one of those, but I've never really. I've used keyboards. I've used the existing Apple Bluetooth tooth keyboard with um, my iPad, but I've never used anything that kind of locks onto it as part of the case. Have you? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, I think we we spoke a little bit about this last week. Um, with the the typing is is one of my main issues. So it sounds like maybe a keyboard would fix that. But on the other hand, like I, I really just like being on a Mac or, or you know even a Windows PC or something like that where I can just flick between everything. And you know, if I want to have, I mean, obviously we've got the split screen coming on the on the iPad Air and presumably for the new iPads. But if I want to have five different windows open that I can see um you know i can do that and i can flick between different things and it it, it really just it's not something for me that um i'm really that interested in and I, I also look at you know the prices i guess the the nearest comparable thing is probably the surface in a way like that's this kind of hybrid between a laptop and a and a tablet um you know and once you you've paid for a decent keyboard for it and, and actually bought the tablet itself i mean you're getting really close to you know something like a MacBook Air or, or maybe even, you know, a low-end MacBook Pro or something. Um, it really just doesn't compute for me. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely a good point. I mean, I I think it's um, it depends on your use case, right? And, and, I mean, part of the problem I think people have in discussing this, at least people who are, in, are interested enough in technology to do a tech um, podcast, <laughs> is that we're, <laughs> we're power users uh, on some level, right? Um, you do web development and I do some iOS development and you could never do either of those things really effectively on, on an iPad. However, I do sometimes, I mean, there are days when I'm not doing 
things. I don't need my um, MacBook Pro, and it's kind of heavy. I mean, I love it. It's 15-inch MacBook Pro, um, but I and I haul it back and forth to downtown Chicago nearly every day and do some you know, coding on the train and whatnot. Uh, but there are days that I just don't do that. And there's days that what I'm doing is I'm writing a blog post or I'm doing, um, maybe I'm putting together an email uh, to my email newsletter people on MailChimp or I'm doing something else like a reading or researching, whatever it is, uh, getting ready for the show. And I just don't need um, a Mac for that. In those situations, it's really nice to have my iPad, uh, because it's just, it's roomier than doing it on my phone. And, um, I, I'm pretty excited about the new iPad. I, I, I kind of see it as the culmination of a lot of things that have been coming down the road for a long time in terms of the integration of both iPhone and iPad software. I mean, we got universal apps a long time ago, and I think we're seeing the the death really at this point of separate iPhone and iPad apps because now in order to work with split screen you've got to have an app that can be resized to really any size whatsoever um, and so it doesn't it's not going to make as much sense going forward to have different size iPad and and I or not different size but different apps for iPhone and iPad um, and, and I'll, I kind of wonder what we're going to see happen with apps like Launch Center Pro or OmniFocus, um, I think Drafts, those are all apps that come to mind immediately that are that have different, you know, different apps for both iPhone and iPad that they charge separately for. Yeah, it's interesting to look at it because, um, you know, on the web, we, you know, you start talking about web apps and things like that, you know, we just have the one web app, you know, you make it responsive and make sure it works on, on small screens and big screens, things like that. But it's always just one code base. Um, whereas my understanding with the iOS app store, there are some things where, you know, you've got kind of auto layout and things like that. I think that's right. And right. Um, but you, you still have this idea of, Oh, this is the iPad version. And this is the iPhone version that there's, there still isn't this kind of middle ground where you just load everything. Um, and I think the iPads still have the, they still have the, the two X mode thing where you can kind of load an iPhone app on an iPad. Is that right? Yeah, they do. They still have that. Um, and you know, now really what you do, you, you choose when you, um, create your project for creating an app, you can choose iPhone only iPad only or universal. So it's really up to the developer to decide what that app is going to, going to have. If you choose universal, then you've really only got, you know, you've got one code base, but, um, you may have multiple assets in terms of the, um, the UI that, that might be might, you know, they'll, they'll vary depending on whether you're looking at it on an iPhone or or an iPad. One one good example is the split screen. Uh, they call it split view controller, which they introduced, uh, I think, with iOS eight. Um, there's always been kind of a split view controller, which is the the view you see, for instance, on the iPad when you're doing mail, where you have a column on the left with your emails and detail on the right. Um, when they, when they redesigned split view controller, they made they basically allowed it to collapse on itself. So if you're looking at one of those on a phone, you'd only see the left hand column of emails, <clears throat> and the detail is effectively hidden underneath it, and doesn't display until you select one of the things in the list. So instead of being side by side, they're effectively on top of each other. Um, so that when it, they're on top of each other on a phone, it looks just like what was traditionally called the table view, you know, just a long list of data that you scroll through and pick things. Um, so that's, that's one way 
the APIs have made it easier um, for developers to create an app and a a universal app that works on both iPhone and iPad, but yet looks different. Um, I saw yesterday uh, Greg Pierce, who develops drafts um, on Twitter, talking a little bit about this. And so he was kind of lamenting the, the, the disappearance of these, the ability to do a separate apps. I mean, you can still do them. The problem is, is that now it's just harder because um, now that everything has to resize, it, it seems that the, uh, that Apple is really would prefer that people make universal apps, which I think has really been from a policy standpoint, that's been the message that developers have been getting for a long time. Um, and one point that he made, which I thought was a good one, is that what it does by forcing um, people towards a single app it eliminates some of the uniqueness of iPad app design because it is a little bit like, as you said, doing a web app and doing some sort of responsive design where your UI has to kind of adapt for anything from an iPhone on up to presumably an iPad Pro. And it's it's just hard. It's harder, not impossible, but it's harder to have unique differences between those two apps when they're running effectively the same code base with the same UI elements. So you kind of follow what I'm trying to say there. It's always hard to describe these UI things when you're, when you're talking in audio, but um, there's kind of, there's definitely a push and pull between how the, the desire for unified apps that are, that'll run anywhere and, um, and the ability to customize between and differentiate devices and make, for instance, make maybe an iPad app more powerful than uh, an iPhone app because it's got a bigger screen and, and is designed for a different use case. Yeah, definitely. And I guess the other part of this is, um, you know, if the new Apple TV that is, you know, allegedly coming, possibly have an app store. I mean, I think at this point they have to have an app store on it um, just to compete with, with the other devices but you know if this is going to have an app store what kind of apps is it going to run does it run you know ipad apps with a with a kind of cursor on the screen which it doesn't sound particularly good but it's certainly possible that you'd be able to run ipad apps on it and at that point you're talking you know 1080p tvs or or, you know even 4k um not not sure why i'd buy 4k at this point but possibly you would you know we've got these huge screens that presumably will have apps you know, maybe it'll run iPad apps, maybe there'll be separate apps, but this, again, the same code base and you just have, you know, some slightly different assets and things like that. Um, what do you feel about the this this new alleged kind of Apple TV? Have you, have you got Apple TVs at the moment? Yeah, I do. Um, and I've, you know, I, I know it's a lot of people have had problems with them and it seems kind of popular to slam the Apple TV, but I actually really like it. I've had it since the very um, the very first one that came out. Um, I got, I, I had a, uh, let's see, I had that for a while. Then I had one second, I had a second gen, uh, Apple TV and held out for the longest time waiting for an update, knowing that one was inevitable eventually finally broke down, um, because I had the, uh, the second gen one that had, it was 720p, I think. Um, and last fall, I finally broke down and got the third gen one with the 1080p just because, um, wanted to, wanted a little bit better resolution watching movies. I, I, I frankly don't have any problems with it. I mean, yes, it will reboot once in a while, although it's very rare for me. Um, usually if I have problems with it, it's more with things like Netflix 
on a Friday night or something or a Saturday night when everybody in the world is watching Netflix simultaneously and it'll, <laughs> it, you know, it'll hang or it'll reboot itself or it'll not be able to access the stream or something like that. Um, but I've been very happy with that. I use it primarily, I guess, for um, Netflix, um, listening to music because I've got it hooked up to a home stereo and um, renting movies is a big one for us. And occasionally I'll buy a TV uh, season and watch something like Walking Dead on it, something like that. Now, one reason I think I have fewer problems than some people do is that I've got it hooked up to um, directly to Ethernet. So I don't have any, I don't have any, um, you know, Wi-Fi is not really a problem for me. And I've got a nice constant fast stream of bits to the, to the box. Yeah, I've got mine set up the same, actually. I just kind of, it's a, like you say, it's a lot easier and it tends to avoid a lot of problems with Wi-Fi. Um, like you, you say you've got uh, three Apple TVs in your house. I, I, I've gone the other way. I have a uh, some kind of Sony uh, Google TV box. Uh, I've got an Apple TV, uh, third gen. I've got um, a Amazon Fire TV stick. Uh, I've got a Mac Mini hooked up to my TV. And then I've got all uh, the PS3 and the Xbox 360. Right. And, and I'm kind of on this quest to find something that will do everything I want. Um, like you say, kind of Netflix is fairly um, ubiquitous at this point. It's kind of on everything. That's fairly easy. But then I've also got Amazon Prime Video, which I sometimes want to access. And I can only get that on the Fire TV or the Xbox 360. And then I've got my own content, um, you know, things that I've downloaded and, and that's that are on the mac mini uh, so i can either watch those through the mac mini or possibly on plex on some of the devices but not all of them um and the apple tv falls into this weird category where it's really useful if i just want to do netflix or maybe airplay content or, or or music but then because there's no app store i can't get a plex app or an app for amazon prime and and, and things like that so i'm hoping <coughs> i'm hoping that this new apple tv will have an app store so i can have access to all of this different kind of stuff um on one device yeah no i i yeah i definitely get that i i have kind of gone a slightly different i have tried other things i have tried plex i've got a roku stick um because i thought it might be nice having amazon prime but i think the because i'm a prime member so i've got that available to me but i think the reality is i don't watch it very much um I'm, I've, you know, I've come fairly deep into the iTunes content, so I'm, I'm kind of locked into that, and it's too much of, it's so, it's so fiddly dealing with the Roku and the other boxes and things. I've just kind of resigned myself to using just what's on the Apple TV because it covers, doesn't cover all my needs, but it covers a lot of my needs. Yeah, there's a in the UK actually. There's a there's a big one that really is missing from the Apple TV, and that's BBC iPlayer. Oh, right. You know, we'll get access. You know, in the UK, you can access the iPlayer, the BBC iPlayer, to uh, rewatch stuff. But the only solution to watch that through the Apple TV is to AirPlay it from an iPad or, or from the iPhone app, um, and, and that's fine. But to a certain extent, I don't really want to turn the Apple TV on, then find my iPad, load up the iPlayer app. You know, it'd be really nice if that was just on on the apple tv itself um and i think that's probably the kind of thing we'll see if the apple tv does um get apps with this new release yeah i it'll be interesting there are a lot of things it'll be interesting to see with this is will it be open to anybody to make apps uh will it be just um certain providers you know um 
Roku, like Netflix or Amazon, uh, will Amazon be on there? I mean, there's no reason why Amazon couldn't be on there now, but they aren't and they haven't been. Um, you know, who will BBC be on there? What's going to happen with all that? Um, and also how these are going to be developed. I think, you know, I don't, I have a hard time seeing this being part of any kind of a, part of a um, an iPhone iPad project. I don't think I just don't think you're going to start a project in Xcode and say I want this to play on iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV. I mean, I, the UIs are so different um, that I don't see how that would that would work. Although you know, maybe I'm wrong. We'll see. Um, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens with all that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so iPhones, John, are you are you planning on getting a new iPhone this year? Um, I I am. My iPhone. I am. I am still on a 5S. I'm not. Uh, I don't get my my phones off contract, at least not yet. Uh, although I've been tempted to, and I've had my 5S for about two years, so I'm coming up on the what is typically the way that the contracts work in the U.S., which is uh, subsidized for two years and canceling early. Uh, subjects you to high penalties. Um, I think mine actually doesn't, my contract doesn't run out until about a week after um, the phones will probably launch. Um, I think the best guess is that, the you know, we'll see the announcement on the 9th. Um, they will be available the following Friday, if history is any indication, because that's typically how it's worked. Um, and I think that's maybe the 18th or so. Uh, and then my contract runs out around the 24th. So I'll be ordering a phone. How about you? Uh, yeah, funnily enough, I'm on uh, same as you, 5S. Uh, probably had it just under two years, um, but the battery, I mean, I, I can't even get it to last all day at this point. Um, so I kind of get to work, charge it at lunchtime, and then it will last me till I go to bed. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'll be upgrading as well. Um, again, another advantage of being in the UK, the, the, uh, the pre-orders that you all have to get up for in the middle of the night are eight o'clock in the morning for us so we can just just quickly get up order a phone and then i can go to work yeah no that's nice i um i actually can't do that only because i get my my um my phone through my work so i can't convince the guy who orders the phones to get up at uh, 2 a.m to do it strangely <laughs> enough so i'll be doing it during the day and hopefully they'll have some left um though one of my um one of my kids is due for a phone so i'll probably try to be a good dad and get up early and, and order him a phone at, at 2 a.m. So uh, I guess I've got to ask, uh, 6S or, or, or 6S Plus? Uh, yeah, it, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, uh, I am very tempted by the Plus. And I think if I had to guess now, I think that's probably the direction I'll go. And I think the reason I would do that is I do almost everything on my phone. I mean, um I've got a decent commute both ways each day, uh, and for whatever reason, I've always found myself using the phone more than I do my iPad, and then maybe that's just because I'm already listening to podcasts or music or something on it, and I am pull it out, and it's easy, and, and uh, especially in the confines of a train to use, so I found it to be the device that I go to first, even if I have an iPad or a laptop with me. Um, and having the extra screen real estate and battery life, um, as well as a better camera, if, if that, pers you know, if, if the camera is a little better than the 6S as it was with the, between the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus, those things are all very attractive to me. Um, 
I'm the same way with my battery on my 5S. It's been two years and the thing is shot. I'm able to, I can leave the house at almost 100, around 100% and have my phone down to about 45 or 50% by the time I get to work an hour, hour and a half later because I do a lot on my phone. I've got, you know, I'm usually listening to podcasts and, uh, and music, if, especially if I'm listening to music and it's streaming. I'm doing that over Bluetooth headphones, uh, so I've got that going. And then I'll be on Twitter or reading something, um, using the web. I mean, I'm usually using got two or three things going at one time that are that are drawing on the radios, and that that will wear down the battery very very quickly. How about you? Do you have any uh, plans for one versus the other? Uh, I've had a play around with uh, with the, with the six plus, um, and that it's just way too big for me. Um, my girlfriend's got the six and, and even that i kind of hold it and i'm like this is almost too big for me um so i'm definitely won't be going for the plus um i think the 6s will will be perfect for me i mean I, I, to be honest i'd just be impressed to have a new phone you know like you say the battery on these two-year-old iphones is just so shot now um so yeah i'll be ordering one of those uh I'd hopefully be able to uh get in on the pre-orders and get that on launch day um and then you know depending on what the apple tv is like I, I may order one of those as well um so this get <laughs> this is always an expensive time of year for uh, yeah, us people sure. who want to upgrade it, it sure is i mean I, I really like the s generations i know you know we'll get the usual articles written right after the event that that apple's doomed because they didn't change the look of the phone because no one seems to you know, at least the the mainstream press doesn't seem to recognize the kind of the pattern over the last several years but um the s generations tend to be really good they've worked out by then they've usually worked out a lot of the any any real serious bugs especially the kind that that are bugs that interface with hardware issues because the hardware is not changing substantially i mean the the chipsets are are changing um but they tend to do a really nice job of of bumping up the camera and everything between between generations and speed for that matter yeah, I've been on the the S generation. The first iPhone I got was the the three G S, I believe, um, and I got really lucky with that. Actually, I just decided on launch day. Oh, do you know what? I'm going to go and get one and see what it's like. Um, I managed to get one on that day, and that, and that was a jump from a a Nokia N ninety five, I think, uh, which was quite possibly the worst phone ever made. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I got the three G S um, on that, and and that was on at the time I was on a two year contract, so I kind of then jumped to the four S, and then when I got my current five S, I I cancelled my contract and just bought uh, SIM free because um, then I managed to drop my actual uh, phone contract down to I think I pay eleven or twelve pound a month. Um, God, that's nice. It's a significant saving, um, and it's just nice not to have this huge amount of money coming out of the bank, you know, every month. I you know, just do this once a year big payment, and then it's done. And if you know, if I want to upgrade in a year to the seven or whatever it's called, I can do so um, and not really worry too much about penalties and uh, things like that. Right. Yeah. No, I was actually a latecomer to the iPhone. I, um, I, my first one was the 4S. Before that, I had a work issued BlackBerry, which was awful. Um, for everything except for email, um, and I did. I kind of had the the John Syracuse thing going. I would use a an iPod Touch, and I was really good at finding Wi-Fi hotspots. <laughs> I'll tell you, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I everywhere I knew I knew the train stops where there was you know somebody's house nearby had an open access point. I had all those all those Wi-Fi uh, spots saved into my my iPod. Um, 
But uh, yeah, that's how I, I started out was with the 4S, which was a nice phone. I really liked that one. Um, you know, the other thing that I thought I wanted to mention briefly, too, about this launch, which I think does it hasn't gotten a lot of press because it's more on the technical side, too. But I th it's going to be interesting to see the quality of the iOS 9 apps that we get. Um, not as much was changed year over year in terms of the APIs, um, which is good, and it makes life easier for developers. Um, but iOS 9 still isn't um, supported by TestFlight. You know, TestFlight's the uh, the beta software that Apple introduced. I think it was in at WWDC in 2014. Now, TestFlight was was a company that, or it's a product from a company that Apple bought before that. Um, you know, originally doing beta testing was really tough on the iPhone, and it's it, it was a hassle. And we're kind of back there right now. Uh, because what you have to do is collect UUIDs, the unique identifiers for the the iOS devices um, from the people who are testing for you, and then you have to, and, and those are you know a string of random letters and numbers, maybe thirty characters long or so. Then you have to go to the website, the the Apple developer website, input those UUIDs into the device into a, a section of the website, then add them to a provisioning profile, then download the provisioning profile. Then get the provisioning profile in the hand of the beta, hands of the beta, beta tester, so they can install it, and then they can get your app. I mean, there's a lot of steps involved, and companies started popping up once that that system existed to streamline it, and that's what TestFlight did, as well as Hockey App, um, and they do t streamline it to they they did streamline it to some extent. Um, they automated the sending of emails and, and pulling UUIDs off of devices and sending them back to the developer. They automated that process to some degree. But when TestFlight was bought by Apple and they integrated it into the developer tools, it made it a lot easier because it was really at that point no different than it was it was simply it was as easy as sending an email to someone to get them on your beta list. They didn't have to have any idea what a UUID was. They didn't have to have any real technical knowledge and they didn't have to go through a bunch of steps. They really just had to tap a button and download your app. And that was wonderful. I mean, it was limited. Some people still preferred Hockey App because it has other SDKs for crash reporting and tracking and other things that you can do. Um, but from a strictly from a, a beta, um, beta's testing standpoint, it was incredibly easy and it was better for everybody. It was better for, better for the developer. It was better for the testers. Um, and when iOS 9 betas started coming out, test flight just wasn't there. It didn't work. Uh, and it's, I think a lot of people assumed, well, it's not the first beta. Maybe it'll be in the second. Well, it's not the second. Maybe it'll be in the third. And I spent a good part of the summer just waiting around for it uh, and finally caved and went back to Hockey App which has been, um, which is just kind of painful, especially after having used TestFlight for a while. I mean, it's good, it works, uh, but it's a lot more work both for me and for the people who I want to test the app. Um, and that's kind of a long background to get to what I think could be, be a bit of a problem, which is I suspect a lot of iOS 9 apps are very, gonna be very lightly tested um, going into this rollout because for a couple of reasons. One is a lot of people, I think, a lot of developers waited and didn't test for many weeks, assuming that test flight would come out and it's still not out and we're days away from the launch. 
Um, and I think even if you have used hockey app, gone to some alternative like that, uh, it, it's just hard to get people to download it because people are used to test flight and they don't want to bother. Um, I know I've experienced that to some degree and, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of developers are going to, are going to end up with very few testers as a result. Yeah, I've, I've done some, you know, some beta tests in the past, um, and I think I'd have to agree, you know, with what you said there. If somebody said to me, "Oh, can you beta test my app?" Like, it's significantly easier for me to just say, "Yeah, here's my email," instead of, "Oh, I've got to find my UDID." Oh, how can I do that? Or do I plug it into iTunes, or I can download one of these apps that will give it to me and tell me what it is, and I've then got to send that back to you, and you've got to then deal with that. Um, I mean, it makes it significantly difficult for the people who for the most part are doing you as the developer a favor you know you're they're not really getting anything out of it um you know yeah they get to see something that's kind of not released yet but there's no huge value to them so obviously you need to make it as easy and as as painless as possible um and it's a little bit of concern as some you know i'm not an ios developer so for me you know i can kind of look at it from the standpoint of downloading apps it's it's worrying to me that i that these apps that come out for iOS 9 just may not be tested very well and they might break on the new devices or you know they they might break on my old phone because they did, couldn't find somebody with that specific model to to test it on right right no and it's it's not clear to me why we don't have this i mean it's um it's a little bit of a mystery i don't know if it's a hardware thing or if it's you know or if it's uh, features that that uh, haven't been that haven't been disclosed yet but i i don't i don't i don't think it would be that i that doesn't seem to make sense to me so i really not sure what's going on i took i know it took a very long time for test flight to really get up and running to begin with and maybe they're just having trouble with getting it to work with ios 9 maybe all the engineers are just working on the uh, on the ipad pro and and somebody's just forgotten about it it's uh, it's just on a little post it note on their desk and they have, haven't quite got around to it yet <laughs> right right <laughs> Uh, so we've got a little bit of uh, so a few more uh, UK weird stories uh, based on obviously we had the uh, the story with the man with the shoes last week. Um, it's going to get slightly more weird this week. Um, it's t- two guys dressing up as as famous people. Uh, the first one is a uh, a chap who has dressed up as Prince George uh, for seven days. Um, he's kind of tried to replicate his clothes and the poses and just kind of take photos to to replicate you know the things that prince george has been doing um and what was the purpose of this what was he what was he trying to accomplish he doesn't really say um it's just it's just, it's just art right <laughs> it would appear so i mean it's described as a bizarre experiment um but he and he's been recording the outfits you know with the photos and stuff and uh he's been writing down the reactions he gets by writing them in a diary um i i can't really work out what the point of, of this is i'm not sure what he's getting out of it as, as you say i guess maybe it's just an art piece or uh something like that but yeah it is very very strange he's gonna have a great tumbler or something right with all of his diary <laughs> entries <laughs> I yeah know. i would imagine so um so yeah they, i mean take a look at the pictures uh we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes um especially the first picture um the guy just just very very strange yeah well it's it's extremely creepy uh you know the grown men should not be wearing uh toddler clothes i'm just gonna put just gonna put that one out there 
But I think that seems like a pretty good, pretty good rule there, John. I'm going to, uh, I'll get that written down somewhere. We'll, uh, we'll start selling posters, you know, motivational posters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the, the, the second one is, um, this at least has a, has a semi reason for doing it. Um, there's a university from, uh, sorry, a, a lecturer from, uh, Kingston university in the UK. Um, he's launched what he's calling a fully immersive David Bowie research project. Um, and I, I, he, he claims he's trying to kind of uh, work out how David Bowie felt when he was, you know, in the seventies and the eighties and things like that. And the guy is, is spending an entire year dressing as, as different stages of, of, uh, of the career, um, as well as eating the same things that he did and, and, and things like that. It, it's all very strange. <laughs> Just kind of trying to, trying to learn, understand David Bowie by being David Bowie, huh? That's pretty much his his justification for it. Um, there's quite an interesting part of it, though. Is uh, he he says uh, instead of doing cocaine, um, he's he's switching that for energy drinks. Um, I'm not sure how accurate that's going to be. I mean, I'm not suggesting he should take the cocaine, um, but it, it just kind of <laughs> kind of seems like energy drinks aren't necessarily going to be a replacement for that. No, I, I think I think that this uh, is a failed experiment already. I, look, if you're going to do it, you got to go all the way. Absolutely. <laughs> this is just not this. No, that doesn't work for me at all. Looking at him here, he doesn't. He doesn't look anything like David Bowie. He's he's doing a he's doing a very bad imitation of David Bowie. Yeah, he he also said he he's doing all his own makeup. Um, there's specifically, I think it's the second picture in this article. Um, all right, that one's a just... li- yeah, that one's a little better. Yeah, um, it's it's a very strange story. And he likes to take selfies. Obviously, I see. Looks like he's using an iPhone. I, I can I can only assume that nobody wants to uh, take the photos for him. Yeah, no, that's up. probably true. Oh god, that's terrible. Um, I don't know. He needs he needs some work. Um, this looks like just a bad Halloween costume that I would have come up with. Yeah, well, maybe, you know, maybe that'll be the new thing for uh, Halloween this year. People will just uh, pick a <laughs> rather than doing you know the traditional costumes, they'll just pick a random celebrity and do terrible terrible outfits for it that's a good idea <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> should we uh should we wrap it up for this week yeah sure sure um just remind everybody uh, if you'd like to get in contact with us you can email contact at ruminatepodcast.com um, and the website is ruminatepodcast.com uh, you can also use the hashtag ask ruminate on twitter if you want to ask us a question or send some feedback and you can find me at uh on Twitter at, at John Voorhees, and my website is squibner.com, S-Q-U-I-B-N-E-R.com. Um, how about you, Rob? Uh, okay, yeah, and you can find me on Twitter at rmlewisuk, uh, or my website is roblewis.me, and we'll be back in another fortnight. Very good. Talk to you later, Rob. See you later, John. Bye.